Um, it's really good to be back and to see you this evening. Um, some of you I have seen a, a bit over the last few months, uh, others of you I haven't seen for a long while. I have to say, I said this this morning, I have really, I've really appreciated the chance, among other things, on my sabbatical to be in different churches uh, on the Sundays and I've uh, been to all kinds of different churches, actually. Claire and I have been back to uh, a couple of the churches where we used to go, and that was quite fun, having not been there for a long time. Um, visited a, a couple of churches where they particularly planted into schools uh, and um, met some of the, the, the people and the leaders there. That was, that was great. Um, some friends' churches. And uh, just to be part of the congregation and to be able to soak it all up and also to see how, how people do things a little bit differently. Um, but it's also really good to be back and uh, to be... Uh, diving into the book of 2 Timothy together this evening and to kind of be back where we belong at this point in our, in our walk together. So it's really good to see you. Uh, of course, I was supposed to be back last week, some of you will know. But didn't feel quite ready, so I got COVID and had an extra week before I came back to, to see you again. And today it's been really good to be at all the services and to go and see um, Living Hope in Thermiston this afternoon where they had a, a visit from Bishop Saju, which was really encouraging as well. Uh, so... Uh, without further ado, let's, let's dive in. And if you can keep that passage open in front of you, whether it's in one of the journals or in uh, one of the pew Bibles, that would be great. Uh, the story goes um, that there was a husband and, and wife, and they planned a holiday to Spain together. But they were, they were, it was one of those couples where they were just both ridiculously busy. Both of them were working you know, all kinds of hours. And when it came down to it, it turned out they arranged this holiday. They couldn't even travel there on the same day. They you know, had a bit of a diary fail. So they worked it out that well, the, hus the husband would go as planned on the Saturday, and then his wife would have to fly out the next day and uh, join him in Spain. And that, that was all going to be fine. So that's what the husband did. And he, he went out on the Saturday, he, he flew to Spain, and on arriving at the hotel, he thought, I know what I'll do, I'll just send my wife a message to explain um, that I'm safely here. So he got out his laptop, but he accidentally mistyped her email address um, into, the, into the, uh, the address bar on his laptop without realizing and sent off the email. Now, there was another woman who he didn't know, uh, whose husband, sadly, had just died uh, within the last few days. Um, he'd been a faithful Christian all his life, and that evening she went to check her emails, expecting to find maybe some, some messages from family and friends. But instead she found this. To my loving wife, from your departed husband. Subject, I've arrived. I have just arrived and checked in. I see that everything has been prepared for your arrival tomorrow. Looking forward to seeing you then. Hope your journey is as uneventful as mine was. P.S. Sure is hot down here. <laughs> Imagine the shock if you got a message like that. That's a very silly story, um, but I couldn't resist. But more seriously, uh, unless it's happened to you, it is hard to imagine that being given the news um, that you're not just going on a journey tomorrow, but that, that you're deaf is going to be imminent. But as Paul writes to Timothy, as you've probably um, discovered over the last couple of weeks, that is pretty much what he is facing. Um, he knows that he's come to the end of his life, doesn't he? And he is approaching his own death. It's coming, and he knows it. In chapter 4, those of you who've read through the whole book, you may have spotted it. He says, the time for my departure is near, and he doesn't mean for a holiday in Spain even though he did have plans to get there at one point. 
He says, I've fought the good fight. I've run the race. I have kept the faith. But he's now ready for the end and what will come next. But first, he writes this letter to Timothy, doesn't he? His young friend and his colleague in Christian ministry, who, as we've seen, is perhaps prone to be a little bit timid, uh, maybe to be easily intimidated by others. And Paul knows that living as a disciple of Jesus is always tough. There's bound to be pressure. And for someone like Timothy, who has responsibility as a leader in the church, uh, a church with some big flaws, and in a world where there was all kinds of persecution against Christians going on, it wasn't going to be easy. Uh, in fact, that persecution is why Paul was, at this point, close to meeting his end. Of that, he's convinced. And so this as far as we've got it, is the last thing that he writes. This is what he wants to say to his young colleague before he gets to the end of his life. And Paul wants to give Timothy some courage. He wants to pass on to him encouragement so that Timothy too might be able one day to say, I've run the race, I've kept the faith, just like Paul says here. And we need that too, don't we? We need encouragement to keep on going. Uh, as Christian disciples... That may be in the leadership roles that many of us have within God's church. And if, well, if that is any of us, this is real gold, as Thomas said, and as we've heard from Ali, for any Christian to read. It's gold, particularly if you're a leader in any way within God's church. And there's so much that is helpful here in living out our lives. This is the third one. And actually, the headline is really simple for today. And it's this. Christian leaders are unashamed about Jesus. And we've been pointed to him in the songs we've sung this evening already, haven't we? Uh, it sounds like an obvious thing to say in one way. We'll unpack it a little bit. But to be a Christian disciple and certainly to be a Christian leader is to be unashamed about Jesus. You may have noticed Paul repeats this several times in the passage. So verse 8, he says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. And then in 11 and 12, he says, this is the gospel of which I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering, yet it is no cause for shame. And then in verse 16, may the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Do not be ashamed of Christ. By extension, do not be ashamed of his apostles. And that is the big call for us here. And so as we just dive into the detail of this for a, a few minutes, uh, it's one of those things where I think it's really good for us to get our heads out of our cultural assumptions as we begin a, a, a passage like this one. Um, what do you think of when you think of being ashamed? What comes to mind if I say to you, what are you ashamed of? You don't have to call that out because by its very nature, that's not a question you want to answer in church, is it? But you might be able to think of something. Um, I certainly can. If I'm honest, though, I think I normally equate ashamed with feeling a bit uncomfortable or a bit embarrassed. I think of what might make me blush a little bit. Um, and, I mean, those things are things we can feel ashamed of. But what Paul's talking about here, I think, is a little bit deeper than that. Um, for Paul... Not to be ashamed to stand up for Jesus is, is not just about a feeling or about potentially being embarrassed. It's about potentially being killed because he's not ashamed to say, yes, I'm trusting in Jesus. And of course, it's worth remembering, isn't it, that it, 
in the Roman world where Paul lived, and in many countries around the world, some still today, uh, there are so many stories of Christians who've been unashamed of Jesus and the testimony about Jesus and his apostles, even though they know that it's risking real danger to themselves by being unashamed. Now, there are many levels of risk as a Christian, aren't there? Look, I'm really grateful that I can be a Christian, I can publicly be a Christian in this country, and I'm not going to be arrested for it. Um, And I praise God for that, and we should do. We shouldn't be seeking out hard times as Christians. Um, But at the same time, whatever it is that we might risk for being not ashamed of being known to be one of those who belongs to Jesus, uh, we need to know that that is the calling that he gives to us even though the cost may vary. So do not be ashamed. Uh, Let's have a look at some things around that. First of all, just in verse 8, that warning then that Paul starts off with, which is be ready for suffering. Oh, it's good news tonight, isn't it? But let's think about what this actually means. What is it Paul says don't be ashamed of? He says don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, that's Jesus, or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Um, he's warning Timothy because he doesn't want Timothy to have unrealistic expectations. It's the bit of the gospel we sometimes don't want to share with people because we think, well, they won't want to be a Christian if they think we might have a hard time for it. But Paul knows that if you're a faithful Christian and a faithful Christian leader, faithful Christian home group leader, faithful Christian church warden, um, faithful Christian um, worship leader, whatever it might be, sometimes it's going to hurt If you've been in Christian leadership, you know that, don't you? In one way or another. But Paul says, be unashamed of Jesus. And be unashamed of me, he also says, uh, his prisoner. And that needs saying too, you know, if we trust in Jesus, we must also trust the ones he has sent, the apostles, his mouthpieces, who he gave the task of teaching and explaining to the church what it means to be a Christian. Paul, the writer of so much of the New Testament. You know, there is a a, a strand in Christianity, you might have come across it, which likes to kind of separate Jesus and Paul. You know, I follow Jesus, not sure I like Paul. He's a bit of a misogynist, a bit of a fanatic. He's a bit harsh. Um, I think when people say that, sometimes I think, have you read what Jesus says in the New Testament? Some of the things you probably like least about what the Bible says came directly from the mouth of the Lord, in fact. But in the midst of all of it, Paul was sent and called by Jesus as a herald, verse 11 says, which means someone entrusted with important news, as an apostle, which just means the one who's been sent, in this case by Jesus, and as a teacher, someone who's given that particular job of helping others to learn more about Jesus and know him better. And so to desert Paul is also to desert Jesus. And so In terms of the implications of this, to be unashamed of the testimony about our Lord means to be unashamed of all that the Bible says about Jesus. And we had that great reminder earlier on in the service um, from that quote Tom gave us, which just reminded us of how Jesus is present in so many of those situations in the Old Testament as well, pointing to him. Um, That's why it matters so much that uh, we hold on to what the Bible says and what the apostles have said to us. Uh, We mustn't be unashamed of what they say about Jesus. And of course, the opposite of being unashamed of the testimony about Jesus is then to be ready for suffering, uh, says Paul to Timothy. And he says, join me in suffering for the gospel, whatever form it takes. 
Um, so what does that mean for us? Well, I think two things here. First of all, it does mean we need to be public about our faith, doesn't it? Uh, we can't be secret Christians. Um, look, people have said to me many times over the years about faith being a private thing. Um, it's very British, isn't it, to not want to talk about religion. But it's completely alien to Paul and completely alien to Jesus. Uh, we can't think that if we understand the gospel. If we really understand the implications that the only way for people to find hope and life and eternity is in Jesus and in what he's done. That can't be a private thing that, that we keep to ourselves and don't share, can it? So at your funeral one day, um, what will people say about you? Just imagine the eulogy for a moment. Uh, someone standing up to talk about your life, you know, your best friend, someone in your family has been given that task. What are they going to say? I really love it when I've been to a funeral. I've been to a few here, actually, in St. Luke's where it's very obvious and it's pointed out that the thing which everyone knows about this person is, is that they trusted in the Lord, that they were a Christian. And there are testimonies of how they, that's affected other people's lives. And it's just been something which has been apparent in how they lived their lives and what a difference it makes. Um, is that what will be said about us? Do my friends and my neighbours really know what Jesus means to me? And... You know, to my shame, I do wonder that a bit sometimes. I mean, of course, my friends know I'm a Christian. It's pretty hard to hide it when you're in my job, isn't it? Although some people might well, ask questions in some cases. I don't know. But um, do they really know? Have I let on what knowing Jesus means to me? What a difference he makes to me? And if I haven't done that, why might that be the case? Is it because I'm afraid to join Paul in his sufferings? I don't really fancy that. Is it because I'm a little bit af ashamed of the Lord? Um, even though I know I shouldn't be. Christian leaders should not be ashamed of Jesus, but realistic about what it might mean. But the second thing here, and this is the encouragement, in case that all sounds a bit serious and tough. Paul is not saying, look, you need to be tough enough and robust enough and strong enough and confident enough to just stand up and be not ashamed. Look, he says, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. How easy just for us to skip over those words. He's not saying, you can do this. You know, just screw up your confidence. You can do it. He knows we can't do it. But he knows that the Spirit of God in us can do it within us. And that leads us into the rest of this passage. Um, I've spent quite a bit of time on verse 8. Don't worry, I'm not going to spend the same amount of time on the next nine verses. Um, secondly, if we're going to be not ashamed of Jesus, we need to remember who it is that we're trusting. So verses 9 to 12 here, which point us fantastically to Jesus and who he is. Verse 9, he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it's now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That is such good news, isn't it? My salvation and my calling as a, believer, as a believer who belongs to Jesus has been granted to me by him and by what he has done. He has dealt with my sin. He has called me to a new life, a holy life. And it's got nothing to do with me or how well I've turned out. And it says there, did you see, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. 
Isn't that amazing? Paul is saying to Timothy, your name was, was written in his book of life before you were even born. He knew you. He knew what he was going to do in your life. Just insert your name in there for a moment. That is what the Lord says to you. Jesus has done it for you. You belong to him by grace from before the beginning of time. And now it's been revealed, as Paul says, through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Why would, be, why would we be ashamed of a God like that? And one of the, the themes of uh, the reading that I've been doing in my sabbatical, one of the things which has, has kept on cropping up has been this reminder of how tempting it is to think that as Christians, and especially Christian leaders, uh, we need to try and be as uh, resilient and strong and impressive uh, and able so that people admire what we, what we do and what we're able to achieve as we can be and as we can do. But that real Christian leadership is about being those who depend on the work of the Spirit in our lives uh, and that although we are weak and acknowledge that we are, by God's power, he does remarkable things. The bottom line for Christian leadership is that it's all about trusting in Jesus to do what we cannot. And he takes people like me. And he takes people like you. And he does remarkable things. And verses 11 and 12 help us to see a little bit of what this looks like. Um, what is it we need to trust Jesus with? Actually, I want to say verse 12 is probably our key text in this passage for tonight. One you might want to write out and remember. Verse 11, we're told Paul is the herald of the gospel, the apostle and the teacher, like I said, sent by Jesus. Um, that's why he's suffering, but he's not ashamed of his sufferings. Why? Because, he says, I know whom I've believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. That day is the day Jesus returns. Paul is con he knows him, he is confident in him, he is confident particularly that he can guard what Paul has given to him to look after. What has Paul entrusted to Jesus? It's his life, isn't it? He's given him everything. He gives it to Jesus wherever it leads. It sounds crazy and it would be crazy unless what Paul says here about Jesus is true. Why would I live for Jesus? Why do many of us seek to live our lives for Jesus? Falteringly, uh, sometimes we get it wrong. Why would we do that? Because we know, verse 12, whom we have believed. Now, Paul knows that firsthand. He's met him. He has a relationship with him. And that's the only basis for entrusting him with everything, to know him for ourselves. That's why you might remember Paul's prayer um, for the Ephesian Christians in chapter 1 of Ephesians, this place where Timothy's been sent, is that they would know Jesus better. That's what they need, first of all, that they would know the hope to which he has called us. And a couple of chapters later on, that they would know how wide and high and long and deep is the love of Christ. When we know him, when we've experienced that for ourselves, then we're able to begin to trust him with our lives and see what he will do. So if the big point tonight is don't be ashamed of Jesus, don't be ashamed of his gospel, if you're sitting there thinking, that's all very well, but how can I do that? How can I get there? I want to say that the first step is to come to Jesus and pray to him that we would know him better. And as we get to know him, because he will answer that prayer, 
uh, we will be able to say with Paul, I know who, whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. I know that having given him my life, having given him everything, that my life is now safer than it could ever have been before. There was a thing in our, if you were here this morning in church when we were looking at Luke 16, about uh, do we store up everything for our retirement or do we store up everything for eternity? When we know Jesus, we know that we can trust him with eternity. He is able even if I am not. Lastly and briefly, um, what does the unashamed Christian leader therefore do? Verses 13 to 18, uh, he or she guards the gospel. That's the task. What you've learned from me, Paul says, keep as the pattern of sound teaching. Um, it's another reminder. I don't have time to labor this one tonight because I'm nearly out of time. But just to note in passing, this is so important. Paul and all the apostles were sent by Jesus to teach the first Christians about him with the good news. They were given authority. The church exists today because Christian leaders down the ages have done that. They've passed it on around the world and down through the generations. And one of the reasons why I'm still an Anglican, still a part of this, um, this Church of England that we're a part of here at St. Luke's, instead of another denomination, it look, the Church of England is not perfect, is it? Um, many of us know that only too well. Um, it's not the best denomination. I don't think it is. It's got some pros and some cons. Um, but its foundations are still sound. Um, and they are things like the Book of Common Prayer, which we don't use directly in our worship services usually because of the old language. Um, something called the Ordinal, which is where it sets out what it means to be a Christian leader in the church. And some, some old texts called the 39 Articles of Religion, uh, which remind us where our beliefs come from. And they're all about what Paul says here. They're about guarding the, the good deposit of the apostles' teaching and guarding it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives, it, lives in us, verse 14. Um, and again, verse 14 is a beautiful verse, isn't it? To hold on to. Capturing in one sentence that faithful Christians need to be people of the word who are empowered by the Spirit. And again in passing, because we're, we're pretty much out of time, what a crucial reminder there is for us again there today. Uh, never to set the word of God against the Holy Spirit of God but to remember uh, that they go together. Um, it is always great to hear people who, who say they want to be word-based Christians. Um, we should be rooted in the word of God, absolutely, um, as long as we are also seeking to be filled with the spirit of God. Otherwise, that can become very dry and legalistic. And of course, at the same time, we should want more of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, whether that's personally or as a church. Uh, and the Spirit will always lead us to the one who speaks as the word of God and will never lead us away from what he has said in his word. We need to learn always to hold those things together and it is always tempting to, to emphasize one at the expense of the other. Guard the good deposit, Paul says, with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And then finally, we see in verses 15 and 18 some examples, some unpronounceable examples of people who are either modelling this in Paul's time or who are modelling the opposite. Don't be like Philegius and Hermogenes and all those people in the province of Asia who deserted Paul and therefore deserted Jesus, presumably because they were ashamed of the gospel. They were ashamed of Paul's chains. They weren't ready to join him in his sufferings. 
They didn't know who they had believed and were not convinced that he was able to guard all that they should be giving him until the day he returns. Instead, be like Onesiphorus, is it? Verses 16 to 18, who helped Paul in so many ways, we're told, who was not ashamed of his chains, who refreshed him because he knew that they were the chains of Christ who had saved him and called him to a holy life because of his purpose and grace given in Christ before the beginning of time and now revealed in what he has done on earth. So, I'm going to stop there. Um, Let's just take a moment of quiet just to reflect. Keep that passage open in front of you, would you, for a moment. And uh, what is it that the Lord wants you to take away from a passage like this one today? You can forget about many of the things that I have said. That's absolutely fine. Um, I'm going to give you a, a moment or two of quiet. You might like just to reflect back on what Paul says here about being unashamed. Have a look again at verse 8. Um, And verse 12, no cause for shame. And verse 16. Or maybe you just want to to focus in on verse 12 for a moment or two as we pray. And that great verse, I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. Is there something in there you just want to pray to Jesus about? Or thirdly, perhaps you want to go for verse 14. Maybe because you're in a leadership role. And you're aware of the challenge there, where Paul says, guard the good deposit, guard it with the help of the Spirit. So just a minute or two, just to reflect and to pray quietly, and then I'll lead us in a prayer. And so praying these words from Ephesians chapter 1 and then chapter 3. I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And so, Lord, as you fill us with your Spirit, as you teach us to know you more, Help us to be those who are unashamed. Unashamed of you, Lord Jesus. Unashamed of what you have done. What you have called us to. What you have said. In your name we pray. Amen.